I bet what you didn't know is that today is Easter. Last week was not Easter. Today is Easter. At least that is if you ask the Greek Orthodox Church, today is Easter. Um, You see, because of the way the calendars work and because of our calendar versus the Jewish calendar and then the calendar that was in between and it gets confusing. But anyways, they count days differently than us. And so because of that, they see today as being Pascha, Easter, Resurrection Sunday, what have you. And so they celebrate it now instead of what the rest of the majority of Christianity celebrated it last week. And we talked about how that, you know, one way or the other, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every day, but especially on Sundays when we take the Lord's Supper. But the reason I bring that up is because last night there was something that happened. It's called the Celebration of the Holy Fire. That is 2016 Celebration of the Holy Fire. It's a time when they go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a place where traditionally that's where Jesus was buried. And um, they, they sing and they, they have a, a service of sorts. And then the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church will go into the Holy Sepulchre. And supposedly a miracle happens. It's happened every year for the last 2,000 years. Well, about 1,500 years. And a miracle happens. And the, the patriarch goes in. And he walks in with three candles. Those three candles are the only thing in his possession when he goes in to the tomb, the supposed traditional tomb of Jesus Christ. The doors are closed behind him. He goes in there. He does something. He comes out, and those candles are on fire. And tradition holds that the miracle of the holy fire is that Fire comes from God to light the candles. And then they spread the candles throughout the whole church of the Holy Sepulchre. The reason I brought that up, I didn't know that this was a thing until this past week. It really has little to do with my sermon, except, except, they believe that it's a miracle. Pause, a little side note. Probably what's happening is those candles are being dipped in magnesium that that is mixed with water. And so, if you know anything about chemistry, as soon as magnesium hits oxygen, it lights on fire and it burns very brightly and very, very hot. Well, they mix it with water, they dip the candles in it. When the water evaporates, the magnesium lights up. And that's how the, that's how the miracle of the holy fire happens every year. But it has something to do with what we're going to talk about today in that it is supposedly a, a, a miracle that... that is God's fire coming down from heaven to light something on fire. Realistically, it's, it's sadly the trickery of man that's causing people to be, to be misunderstanding the, the nature of miracles and so forth. But in 1 Kings 18, it's not fake. So chapter 17, you have a king by the name of Ahaz has taken the throne. And he is... Uh, let's say less than desirable. Well, that's really, a, that's really an understatement. A king Ahaz is the worst king that ever existed in the Israelite nation, both, old, uh, both uh, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Ahaz takes what his grandfather did and doubles down on it. We talked about that about a month ago when we studied Ahaz. But what happens is some, some occurrences happen. Ahaz's wife 
uh, decides that she's going to kill all the prophets of God. Her name is Jezebel. You've probably heard of her. Even if you don't know a lot about Scripture, you've probably heard about the Jezebel. She decides she's going to kill all the prophets. And a man by the name of Obadiah. Now, keep in mind, this is the beginning of chapter 18. Uh, keep in mind that Obadiah is probably not the same Obadiah that wrote the book of Obadiah. It's just, a, it's just another prophet of God. And so this prophet named Obadiah that we don't really know a whole lot about, Elijah has left. Elijah was the kind of prophet that uh, he came in, spoke the word of God, stirred up trouble, and then he left. Came in and said, there's going to be a famine. There is a famine. He leaves, and God is feeding him with birds. The Bible says that birds would bring him food. Can you just imagine for just a second being Obadiah, okay? Because when Jezebel decides that she's going to kill the prophets of God, Obadiah decides that's not going to happen. And so he takes some of the prophets and he hides them in a cave. And he takes care of them and he feeds them and so forth. And eventually Elijah comes back and he says, I want you to go get King Ahaz and meet me at Mount Carmel. Not Caramel, Carmel, okay? It's not even spelled the same as the delicious... Anyways, anyways, so I almost got off track. Um, I want you to go get King Ahaz, and I want you to bring him to Mount Carmel. Can you just put yourself in the position of Obadiah for just, just a second? Obadiah says, no, 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 I'm not going to get Ahaz for you. Because I know what you're going to do. You're going to come back. You're going to make him mad again. Then you're going to go off and have your delivery service from the birds, and I've got to stay here and deal with it. No, I'm not going to get him. And he says, no, here's the thing. This is the time when God is going to show King Ahaz and Jezebel and all the prophets of Baal what's really going on. I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stay right here and wait on you. And so in 1 Kings chapter 21, or chapter 18, verse 21, they get there. Verse 20, so Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Just hold on a second. Elijah is about to challenge the prophets of Baal. Even if, even if you consider the almighty powerful God who is on Elijah's side, that still seems to me a little stretch. Elijah, it's you versus 450. If they get mad, it's going to need God Almighty. You're going to need God Almighty to stop them. Because the prophets of Baal were not known as cordial, inviting, loving individuals. But he says, here's what's going to happen. How long are you going to, the Bible says, limp between two different opinions? And so here's the answer. I want you to take an altar. You prepare a bowl. I'll take an altar. I'll prepare a bowl. Nobody lights any fire on it. And we're going to see whose God can light fire. The real occurrence of the holy fire. Not some science trick, not some, you know, high school chemistry lab experiment. 
We're going we're gonna to really see whose God can light these on fire. And so you probably remember the rest of the story. Elijah gets his bull ready. The prophets of Baal gets, get their bull ready. And they start praying. The prophets do. The, they, they start praying to the gods of Baal. Baal is not just one god. It's a, it's a pantheon, if you want to call it that, of gods. It, pantheon is a, is a Greek word. But anyways, it's a pantheon of gods. Baal is a group of gods. And they're praying to all of their gods. And he's, they're not listening. And so they start cutting themselves and tearing their clothes apart because they're, they're so overwhelmed by, by the trance that they've put themselves in that they're now harming themselves, trying to get their God to do something. Because when you turn God, what we talked about this past Wednesday, when you turn God into what you just want him to be, then you have to, you have to hurt yourself to get him to answer. If, if God is just a human being, and if he's, if he's like you and I, then when he isn't hearing, you have to scream louder. And when he's not paying attention, you have to do something to get his attention. And even in the text, Elijah, um, you know, I wish, one day I hope to meet some of the prophets of God. Because I think of myself as somewhat sarcastic, but I don't think I would ever say this. Elijah says, uh, maybe you need to just cry just a little louder. He might be going to the restroom and he may just not be able to hear you. And so they continue. Nothing happens. And it finally becomes Elijah's turn. And Elijah pours water on the thing because back in the day they would have, a, a, it was kind of like the, the holy fire. They would build this altar, but underneath the altar they would build a tunnel. And they would put some sort of flammable um, fuel in the, in the tunnel. Maybe uh, lamp oil or maybe some, some leaves and things like that. And they would put it in the tunnel. It would go 100 yards or so away so no one could see them. And they'd light it. And eventually, while they're praying, all of a sudden, boom, the altar is on fire. And so Elijah says, here's what I want you to do with my altar. Since your God couldn't light it on fire, here's what I want you to do with my altar. Pour water on it. Make sure that it is completely drenched. Then when you do that, do it again. We're going to see whose God can really cause fire to come down from heaven and light this altar. Not a chemistry experiment, the true fire of God. The same fire of God that in Leviticus chapter 10 burned up Nadab and Abihu. The same fire of God that at the end of creation, after the judgment day, is going to come down and burn all of the elements and destroy them completely. That God. The God that can do that, pour some water on it. And so that's exactly what happens. And then at the end of chapter, chapter 18, verse, um, let's see here. Oh, I lost my part. Hmm. Anyways, it's, uh, I think it's verse 36. Yeah, somewhere around in there. Anyways, at the end of the story, Elijah decides that these prophets are not going to just they're not just going to get away with this. See, the Old Testament had a command that when you are a false prophet, you are put to death. Because that's the amount of, of sincerity that God required of people who were going to speak on behalf of deity. 
If you're going to be a prophet and you're going to teach false doctrine, if you're going to teach false prophecies, if you're going to stand up for gods like Baal who have no power because they're, they're just things, Isaiah says, they would go out into the, into the woods, cut down a tree, they'd cut the tree in half, use half of it to make an idol, and the other half they'd use to burn to keep their household. If you're going to be that kind of prophet, you're going to be put to death. And so Elijah chases them down, and he puts all 450 prophets of Baal to death. Now, I want to go back and focus on 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. He says, how long will you limp between two opinions? Have y'all ever been driving down the road? This happens in my neighborhood just about every day, okay? Now, y'all know that these, oh, there we go. Those are the cutest animal on the face of the earth. They're also one of the tastiest, asterisk, okay? Because I love them. But in my neighborhood, squirrels will drive, you drive down the road and y'all have been there, right? It's usually when you have someone in the car with you and and you have this experience where the squirrel gets in the middle of the road and then he can't decide which way to go. And so he just stands still until the last second and then he runs. If he'd have just stood still, you would have straddled him with your car and he'd been just fine. But he runs and gets hit. Y'all ever been in that occurrence before? That's the, that's the imagery that Elijah is using in, second, in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. How long are you going to limp? You, you, you just move back and forth. You can't really move from one way to the other because you have no guidelines. You have no backbone to make the decision. Just like a squirrel in the road, you're running back and forth, and you're trying to make Baal match with God. You're trying to say that, you know, when... When I have a problem that is local, if I have a flood or if I have a drought, just so happens that Elijah has already dealt with droughts before. He prophesied that there was a drought going to come, and then he prophesies when the drought is going to end. But if we have a drought, we need a local person because we don't want to bother the Almighty with our local problems, so we'll just make a local God, and he can take care of our problems. And Elijah is saying, how long are you going to try to match the pagan idea of a God that whenever you need a God, you just make another one? And the God of eternity who created you and has sustained you and is building, um, has built you up and built, building you into the nation that he wants you to be, how long are you going to limp between the two? The word for it is pethi. Pethi, it comes from Proverbs chapter 22, verse number three. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple, the, the naive person, the person with, who is open-minded and wants to try to fit all of the things in to, to all of the experiences and all the circumstances. If I need this, I might go here. If I need this, I might go here. The, the simple go on and suffer for it. Y'all ever met the person who it seems like they believe whatever the last thing they heard is. It seems like, you know, whatever the last person someone's, last thing someone said in a conversation, that person agrees with that. That is the pethy person, the simple person who is so open-minded that his brains fall out, as one person said. That's the pethy person. And what Elijah is doing in 1 Kings 18 is he's saying, how long are you going to be pethy? How long are you going to be so naive, so simple-minded that you can't make a decision one way 
or the other. So here's what I want to do. I want to go through three different observations that, um, that I can see in 1 Kings chapter 18, and hopefully they'll help us. Number one, given enough choices, we will try to choose them all. As human beings, we want balance. As human beings, we don't like controversy. There are some personality types that like controversy, but overwhelmingly, we don't like controversy. It's the idea of, in music, there is a thing called a leading tone. It's the seventh note in a scale. It doesn't really matter to you. But here's what, I'm going to do something that I've never done in a worship service before. Are you ready? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It wasn't finished, was it? That's the leading tone. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There's the finish. You see, you have to have that balance. Whenever you have a leading tone, you, you need balance. You feel like you need balance. And that's the same that these people are having in 1 Kings 18. That's the same thing that we all want. We all want balance. And given enough options, we will try to choose them all. That's what is happening in 1 Kings 18. That's what happens with the pethy person of Proverbs 22 and verse number 3. Proverbs 14 and verse 15 says, The simple believes everything, but the prudent, the prudent believes, gives thought rather, the prudent gives thought to his steps. People of God throughout the generations, throughout history, all the way from the Garden of Eden until now, have wanted more. We've wanted to be able to fill in the gaps, like we talked about Wednesday. The things that we don't know about God, we want to be able to fill them in. The things that we, we, we see a, a controversy, we want to somehow try to figure them out so that they fit together. As a Christian, you see the world and you see the Bible and you say there must be some answer to this. You, you know that doesn't exist, right? The true balance between right and wrong does not exist. There is not a gray area. When I preached in gray, everyone would joke that I preached the gray area. There is no gray area when it comes to right and wrong. It's either right or it is either wrong. Proverbs 14 and verse 15. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 9. This, this idea of, of, of pethy, of a person who is so naive and, and, and wishy-washy, if you want to call it that. It's also used to describe a child. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 6. For at the window of my house... I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, the pethy, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. He's talking about a, a young man who is overcome by wanting to be the, the put-together, you know, Jewish boy who who looks good and, and he looks like he's following God, but at nighttime when no one's looking, he's, he's walking down the road by her house, the, the, person, the woman of ill repute, and he goes in. 
We, we want to act like we're all put together, but at the same time, have our, have our outside person. That's the pethy person. And the Proverbs writer says that it's like a young person. The New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4, says that, we'll look at this in just a second, but we've been given the word of God so that we're no longer tossed to and fro like children. Children don't have the ability to decide right from wrong. They don't know what the difference is. It's at the point when they know the difference, they can make the decision and they have the maturity level to the point where they can actually make honest to goodness final decisions in their life that they've reached the time when they're accountable for those decisions. Romans chapter 16 and verse 18 says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the heart They deceive the hearts of the naive. Naive is the pethy person. There are people out there who want to deceive you for one reason or another. Maybe they don't know better. Maybe they're naive in and of themselves and they've been told something and so they're going to replicate it and replicate it and replicate it and replicate it. Maybe they're doing it for some other reason. Maybe when it comes to scripture, they're trying to teach because if they make it sound really nice, they can make a lot of money. The first thing, one of the first things I was ever told when I decided I was going to become a preacher is, you know, if you do it right, you won't make much money. And I said, I'm okay with that. Maybe they're doing it out of, out of selfish ambitions. Maybe they're doing it for some other reason. But they, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Given enough choices, we will try to choose them all. Number two, observation number two. The word gives us the ability to make the decisions without a visual proof. In 1 Kings 18, in verse 21, he says, How long are you going to limp between two opinions? The implication there is they should have already made the decision for themselves. But they didn't have the miracle yet. You realize that in the Bible, these miracles that are recorded are meant to prove something. The miracles all the way through the Old Testament and New Testament are meant to prove something. They're meant to prove what the person should have already accepted to begin with. When you go to the New Testament, you see Jesus raising the paralytic man. You see the the friends who he's preaching and the friends let him down through the, the roof. You remember that story? He did that miracle to prove to the people who were sitting there and watching the people lowering them down from the roof what they should have already accepted to begin with. God has never called a person to follow a command that he never gave. That seems pretty simple, right? God has never provided a miracle to call someone to something that he didn't already say. Elijah has been prophesying for years at this point. Obadiah has been prophesying for years at this point. Prophets throughout the ages have been trying to tell Israel, you have to fix this. And then when the the nation splits into northern kingdom and southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, the prophets still come and they're still prophesying to, to the people and saying, you have to fix this. You have to fix this over and over again. 
The New Testament does the exact same thing for us. The reason why we don't need miracles today is because we have the word that we need written down in front of us. And we have the obligation to follow it. And if we need justification for that, it also has the miracles inside of it. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making simple, making wise the naive or the simple. Hebrews 11 and verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. When we take the word of God, we believe it, it fills in the gaps that we don't know already. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because one time that backfired on me. But have you ever seen an angel? Not that you knew of. One time, I'd say it backfired because I asked that question and uh, the, one of the ladies in worship service said, he's right there. And I said, what? He said, she said, he's standing right beside you. I said, what are you talking about? She said, Jesus is standing right beside you. And I Again, I'm kind of sarcastic, and I went, nice to meet you. Oh, wait. Anyways, um, you've never seen an angel. Raise your hand if you've seen the creation. At, not the creation that you walk outside and you see the trees. If you were there at the creation. If you've seen heaven. If you've seen hell. You haven't seen any of those things. But faith gives you the substance for the things that are hoped for. Heaven. And the evidence for things that you've never seen, like the creation. You see, God is not going to call us to do something that he's not going to give us ample proof for. Elijah gave the proof in a miracle, but they should have already made the decision to begin with. Observation number three. A dedicated mind will bring contempt from Satan. A dedicated mind and a dedicated people will bring contempt from Satan. When Elijah is standing there and Ahaz walks up, it's 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, verse, uh, here we go, verse, seven, verse 17. After this, verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from his arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged him and, and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God. Have you brought calamity even upon the widow whom I, with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived him. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber to the house of, delivered to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. You see, but the reason why the woman said that to begin with, what, what have you against me, O oh man of God? That's, it, that's said in derision. She's upset with Elijah and she calls him a man of God because she doesn't believe he is one. 
Then later on, Ahaz comes down and says to Elijah, what do you want, troubler of Israel? And then later on, after Elijah kills the 450 prophets of Baal, a woman by the name of Jezebel decides, I'm not just going to kill the prophets of God. I'm going to kill Elijah. And so she starts chasing him, and he has to run and flee for his life. You see, the thing is that a a united front, a, a dedicated mind, and a dedicated people of God are going to bring derision. They're going to bring hatred from Satan. The one thing that he hates most is people who have been dedicated and made the decision. The people who don't, those of you who just come on Sundays and just fill a pew and then leave and then don't think about religion, don't think about Jesus, don't think about the Bible or about church for the rest of the next six days and then Sunday your alarm goes off and you go, oh man, I gotta go. Those kind of people, he's good with y'all. It's the people who are dedicated that Satan is going to try to attack. The people who aren't dedicated and have no backbone and are, and are limping between one decision and the other, between one opinion and the other, they're the squirrel in the middle of the road, you're doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. It's the people who have a dedicated mind and have made the decision, those are the people that he's coming after. Elijah, there is no way you can read the account of 1 Kings and, and the, the scriptures that pertain to Elijah, not just in the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, but at, in his entire life. There's no way that you can look at that man and say, well, he was kind of wishy-washy in a couple places. He made decisions, he stood for his decisions, and he knew that when I make decisions for God, it's going to come back on me. And I'm okay with that. Observation number three, a dedicated mind and a dedicated people will bring contempt from Satan. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters. There we go. It's not just the people. It's not just the people who are evil. It's the people who are evil and the imposters, the people who are just trying to fake it. They will grow worse and worse. They will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's the people who don't have a backbone, who, don't, who aren't dedicated, who haven't made the decision. Those are the pethy people. Those, that's the person who's so open-minded. Listen, I, I have long made a claim. I did not grow up in the church. I did not grow up around the church. You know, it, side note, when, everyone says, when someone says, I grew up in the church, I think, That's a, why'd y'all have to live in the church building? Anyways, I did not grow up around the church. If you can prove to me that what that Bible says is not true, I will go work at Walmart for the rest of my life. You see, open-mindedness is not the ability to change. Open-mindedness is I'm going to change whenever something new comes up. That's the problem. The willingness to change when you see a fault, when you see a problem, that's what God wants you to do. The naivete that says that whenever someone says something, that's the truth. That's a problem. 
That's the pethy person. That's the person in 1 Kings chapter 18 that's just trying to make all the gods happy. I don't even know if this God exists, but I'm going to make him happy. Acts chapter 17. We know that we've missed some gods because we've made up all these, and somebody next week is probably going to come up with a different God. We're going to make an idol to the unknown God, just in case we missed one. That's the pethy person. That's the simple-minded person, the naive-minded person that will be deceived. It takes a person who has made a decision to follow God. If you want to become a Christian this morning, it's going to take a decision. It is not something that you just do to join a country club. I have friends in college who are baptized who have fallen away because they thought they were just joining a a civic group. Don't do that. If you make the decision that you're going to follow God, then now's the time to do it. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you so that you can let us know and so that we can baptize you. And if you need to repent of sins, let us know while we do that as well.